0: Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 through 34 and it can be found on page 1,784 in your pew Bibles. In the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Jessica. We are on the sixth out of seven of the deadly sins in our summer sermon series. We'll wrap up next week with lust, so any of you who are interested in lust, please come back next week. I won't ask for a show of hands. (laughs) Gluttony. How many of you like gluttony? Uh, There's a few honest people here. All right. That's one of mine. I'll admit it. I have a few weaknesses when it comes to food, and I usually have to have my wife or somebody else say, don't you think that's enough? Um, Apple pie. Apple cobbler, actually, is a little bit more. Yeah, you know, it it just gets me. Uh, Peanut butter M&Ms are the other one. I thought about taking a bag of those with peanut butter M&Ms and just starting to eat them here but I'm afraid I wouldn't have stopped eating them and we wouldn't really get around to the message this morning gluttony anybody have an idea what gluttony is anybody eating in excess eating junk food pigging out all right we're getting the eating more than you need yeah well We'll dig into it a little bit uh, and, and talk a little bit this morning about how the church really viewed gluttony throughout its history. Um, there's actually five different types of gluttony uh, that the church has talked about, and so we'll, we'll come back to those in a few minutes. But I want to start us off as we think about this this morning and, and engage this text, um, I want to start us off by, by paying attention to some of the other times that gluttony is mentioned in Scripture. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, talks about what parents were supposed to do with a rebellious child. They were supposed to take that rebellious son and bring him to the elders of the city and say, my son is a drunkard and a glutton. And then the men of the city would take that son outside the city and stone him to death. How many of you children are glad we live in this day and age? My son raised his hand back there. <laughs> Proverbs 23, 21. Drunkards and gluttons become poor. Drowsiness clothes them in rags. And it's, it's highlighting in, in a number of different places in Proverbs the connection between being a drunkard and a glutton and poverty those two go hand-in-hand throughout Proverbs. And then there's another angle that Proverbs comes at at this with. A discerning son heeds instruction, but a glutton disgraces his father. And so it's pointing out that that the patterns that come into a a person's life when they become gluttonous actually uh, have a, a ripple effect on the reputations of the people around you, especially your family. Gluttony is not looked upon highly in Scripture. What is gluttony? Historically, the church talked about five different types of gluttony. One was too daintily. Any picky eaters here? Yeah? It is, it is that idea of, i only eat it if it's just right. You know as a kid when you wanted the crust cut off, your bread, your sandwiches, because you don't want to eat the crust? and you wouldn't eat the sandwich until the crust was actually cut off. Or, one of mine was, I had to have it cut straight down the middle, not at an angle. I was really particular, and one day, I just decided I wasn't going to eat peanut butter and jelly anymore. I just up and decided that, and so I got cheese sandwiches for lunch, for school, for like eight or nine years in a row, because I just decided I was done with peanut butter and jelly. And, and there's something of that pickiness setting in, that the early church said, that's actually gluttony. It's not about eating too much, but it's about being too particular about the food we are given. Too sumptuously. Now, some of you are like, what in the world? What's sumptuous? Where do we go with that? It's a big word. Basically, it means you're eating not for the health of the food. You're eating for the taste of the food, and more importantly than the taste, for feeling satisfied. My father-in-law has a saying that I got introduced to uh, along the way. After a good meal, he would say, I'm sufficiently safonsified. Sufficiently safonsified. It was just his quirky way of saying, I'm full and it was good. I'm satisfied. But the difference between being satisfied after a meal and simply eating for that satisfied feeling is what they're after with sumptuously. We're eating just to get that feeling of feeling full and satisfied. That's what I'm eating for. Someone pointed out to me the difference between Americans, and I'm American, and French when it comes to eating. The idea in France is that you eat until you are no longer hungry. The idea in the States is you eat until you are full, and you eat everything on your plate gets wrapped in there. And Canadian may find yourself somewhere in between those two. But it is that sense of you are eating to be full. And that feeling of being full. And that, the early church said, is gluttony. It also added in there, too hastily. My dad would talk about this, uh, um, uh, a sense when he was a kid and it goes really with the next one as well. but he, he had five, four brothers, so five boys, uh, all within about 14 years of each other. And they would get to the table, and they would all get served up the first, um, but there was no guarantee on seconds. And so he said, we would shovel our food in because whoever was done with the first serving first got seconds, and whoever was done with that first serving last didn't get seconds. And so as teenage boys, they would just shovel it in. Uh, it, it was part of their their kind of upbringing the early church would have said that's too hastily you are trying to shovel it in you're not actually recognizing the food as a gift given to you it also added in there too frequently this is man a lot of examples from my family today this is <clears throat> henny and i were dating and and she was making a dinner for me Invited me and one of my sisters over for the meal. And as we got there, I went and made a cheese sandwich. And I started eating the cheese sandwich. And she got frustrated. She's like, What are you doing? I'm making a meal for you. I'm like, Yeah, but I'm hungry. <laughs> and I ate the cheese sandwich. And, and it, it became this it's now a joke with us. We talk about cheese sandwich as a joke. But it, it really became a barrier. But I had to recognize that was part of the too frequently the inability to wait. For a meal, the inability to wait for what's being offered to you, the need to possess food and take food and have food all the time or have access to food all the time. For some of us, this might be the Snickers drawer in our desk that sometime during the day we just have to have a little bit more. We just need a little bit. And so it's that eating throughout the day type pattern. And the early church said that's part of eating too hastily, too frequently. It's gluttony. It added in another piece, too greedily, and this is the competition side of things. I want to make sure I get second, so I'm going to eat this first. Or, or some of the newer commentators say, it's going for the dessert before the main meal. I went, oh, oh. <laughs> it's when we have big Thanksgiving meals. You know what I go for first? The apple cobbler. <laughs> it's eating that too greedily. The other piece, too much. This is kind of the classic gluttony. When you when you Google pictures of gluttony it's usually someone who is extremely obese, overweight, stuffing more food in their mouth. That's kind of our typical picture of gluttony. But the early church said there's actually lots of forms of gluttony. And then they added this. There is actually a mirror vice. It's called the vice of deficiency. And it, is, it parallels. It's like the, same, uh, the opposite side of the same coin. We don't treat food uh, a, as something that's being given as a gift. We actually avoid it. So gluttony is all about the taking in of the food and how we take it in. The, the deficiency is avoiding food. No, I just don't need it. I'm just going to avoid it. And, and we don't recognize it as a gift. And both of these refuse to receive food as a gift from God and both, neither of them actually pay attention to other people while we're eating eating becomes a very self-centered selfish act and because of that the early church said this is a vice so we get to our text today abusing the Lord's Supper how many people have heard this this text preached before yeah the church, especially the Dutch Reformed Church, has used a little snippet of this text to make sure that people don't come to communion in an unworthy manner. In fact, there's a tradition in the Dutch Reform kind of history, part of our history, the Christian Reform's history, as you go back, that people would not take communion until they were close to their deathbed because they were afraid that they were going to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. There was fear that was driven into God's people about the grace that's supposed to be given to us. And many times the church took this passage, that little piece, out of context. So we're going to take a look this morning just at the bigger context of this passage and what's happening here and what Paul is really confronting and how that has to do with gluttony among God's people, even as they were participating in the Lord's Supper. There was a a social structure at that time that had to do with eating. And and the way the home was set up was was in the middle of a a, a large room, so somewhere like this in the middle of the room, there would be a very low table to the ground, sometimes only this far off the ground, sometimes only a blanket. And they would, on that, put all the food that was going to be served for that meal. And, And the people would literally recline around, and eat. And I know you can't all see me, but I'm laying on the floor. (laughs) And they would sit there and eat. And and the way they decided who got to lay there on the floor and recline and get the first dibs on the food was based on who was the wealthiest and most important people in the community. And you knew your social pecking order. You knew if you belonged on the floor or, for the other people, the people who were not privileged to lay on the floor and eat the food. They would stand against the wall and wait and wait and wait. Sometimes, if a person really wanted to show that they were wealthy and generous, they would actually hire people to come and stand around the room. Or they would send people, uh, one of their servants, out to the community to invite poor people to come in and stand around the room. Just so there was enough people around the room that those lying around the table go, wow, he's really generous. Look at all these poor people he's gonna take care of today. But the thing is, no one around the outside of the room would get a crumb until everybody in the middle was completely satisfied. And as Paul's telling about in this text, sometimes they even got drunk. They ate so much and they drank so much that they would be drunk before they stopped. Essentially, that meant that the poorer people would just get the leftovers. Now, in our house, we love leftovers. That means it's been in the fridge for more than a day and we sometimes make a meal out of that. It's an extra meal. Oh, we get pizza again. I love cold pizza. I love cold lasagna. We get those fun meals, right? But at that point in time, the leftovers meant you didn't have enough status or enough privilege or enough standing to get the real meal. And so the rich people would kind of stagger out of the room and the poor people would come in and get whatever was left. And this is what was happening With the Lord's Supper. The same social pattern was kept in the church. And Paul's railing against it. In the way you practice the Lord's Supper, I have no praise for you. No praise for you. He confronts them and basically says to them, you're out of line. You're missing the point of this meal. You are taking this meal and and you're conforming it to the standards and patterns of the world around you instead of letting the grace of Christ transform the patterns of the world. Your eating, your gluttony is denying the gospel, it's consuming the gospel. You know what's really not that surprising? that an abuse like this happened with the Lord's Supper? Think about it for a minute. What was the first gift given in Scripture? Anybody know? Genesis chapter 1, right after making everything, God says, And I give to you every green plant as food. God's first act was not go out in all the world, fix the whole world, cause it to grow and flourish. God says, I'm giving you the gift of food. I'm giving it to you as a gift. And as we've seen with the vices, the gifts given to us get, get kind of twisted and turned and, and manipulated to be something that is, is in a way a distorted way of living, that's denying the gifts God's given us, that's trying to possess the gifts given to us. And this one is, is one of the first things. Not only is it the, the God's first gift, but our first committed sin in Scripture is what? Big bite of an apple, right? Or other piece of fruit. We don't quite know what it is. But taking that bite of food, a first gift and the first committed sin are both revolving around food. It is no wonder that food comes up as a place for our sin throughout God's people's history and even with the Lord's Supper. There's a few verses that come up after this. Paul explains kind of the, the, the gift of the Lord's Supper and as a memorial of, of, God, of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And he explains the origin of that. And then he talks about those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And what he's talking about here is not an isolated little verse or little teaching. It is in the context of this. This practice, this social practice, making its way into the church. And he's saying, are you discerning the body? Is the body taking the shape of Christ and Christ's body? Or is the body still reflecting everything about the world around it? Are people still being discriminated and shoved to the sidelines? Or is everyone being brought close to Christ through the way you celebrate this meal? He adds in there that if we don't discern the body, if we don't ask these tough questions about how we, as the body of Christ, are living as the body of Christ and are gathering as the body of Christ, then we are in danger of being guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ when we take that meal, we together, and that it is actually each person's responsibility to discern the whole body. Oftentimes, when it comes to discerning the body, we want to leave that for the elders and the deacons and the pastor. You guys are ordained and called to do that, not the rest of us. Paul says each person who gathers has a responsibility to discern the body the way we are treating each other, the way we are interacting with each other, the way that we are or are not reflecting the grace of Christ in our relationships with one another. Each of us are called to discern that before we come to the table. When we enter into that discernment, though, we need to remember that the table is, is about God's grace being extended to us. I think oftentimes we miss this point. The table, the the celebration through that bread and that juice of Christ's death and resurrection, the invitation to be reconciled with God, to be made new through the working of the Holy Spirit, that meal is a meal of grace that says, whatever you have done, your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Come near to the God who loves you so much that he gave his only son for you. Come, receive the grace. So this discernment is not meant to keep us away from God. This discernment is meant to draw us closer in that all of us might experience the grace more fully. The guilt, really, the guilt in this passage is really from eating communion participating in communion in a gluttonous way. Failing to receive the meal as a gift. Kind of that too picky side, right? I've got too many sins. God couldn't possibly forgive me. She has too many sins. God couldn't possibly forgive her. Maybe he does too. Maybe none of us should go up. It's being too picky and not receiving the grace that's been given to us. No regard for the well-being of others. Now we kind of walk up here. I don't know, not all of you may have seen us do communion here, but we walk up to a couple places where we serve, and if one of us was like, Hi. One of us was like, I'm getting up there first. No regard for others. No regard who we're going to push. If we practiced communion and said, You know what? you got to walk up, and if you can't walk up, Tough. We would be guilty of not having regard for others. We take the time to walk around and make sure everyone who wants to participate can. The other piece to it is refusing to extend God's reconciliation to others. This is actually where the church historically spends most of the time on this passage. Are we extending the reconciliation of God's grace? Through Jesus Christ, to other people in the body, Or are there people that we're harboring unforgiveness towards? Here's a few questions then for us. So how do we show the reconciliation of Christ's death and resurrection through the Lord's Supper and, and through our life together? I'd suggest for starters, there's at least three questions. Who in the church have we refused to forgive? Who within the body of Christ have we refused to forgive? We've said, you know what? The grace of Christ is for me, but not for you. That may take some soul searching. That may not take any time at all. Some of us may know exactly who we are refusing to forgive. And before we participate in communion the next time, I would encourage us, Go and seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness. Who among Christ's body do we avoid or ignore? There may be people here who we see walking towards us or at least walking in our direction and we take a turn and go, I'm going to go this way today. There may be people that we see from church outside of here, like in a grocery store, and we go, do, 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 put her head down, get really interested in something on the shelf that we really weren't going to buy and it's not on our list, but suddenly we're deeply interested in the ingredients until we know out of the corner of our eye that person's walked by. Who among us, among Christ's body, do we avoid or ignore? Whom have we judged or refused to treat as a sister or brother in Christ? See, these are the the questions we're called to enter into about discernment and discerning the body of Christ together. Where is that stifling, that gluttony of of the grace of Christ? Because in essence, it's not so much about the food. It's really about our attitude towards others in response to the grace of Christ given to us. God's generosity towards us in food and more importantly, in Jesus Christ? Do we possess it? Do we keep it for ourselves? Do we hold on to it? Do we refuse to extend it to others? Or will we be generous and give the grace of Christ away even as God has given it to us so freely? This passage serves as a reminder and a call to us. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, from Emma on up to the oldest of us, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All those outside social boundaries that tear us apart and divide us from one one another are taken down in Jesus Christ so that we are brought together as the people of God, reflecting the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our interactions with each other. That's what that meal is about. That's what gluttony tries to tear down. It tries to become a a self-possessing, refusing to see anything as a gift, refusing to let go of things and cling to it for ourselves. It's got an underlying possessiveness that doesn't allow us to be grateful for the work God is doing in bringing us together. Because we're talking about gluttony, I don't want to just stop at this passage because there's a bigger storyline in Scripture about food and eating and how how to partake in eating as a gift from God. And Jesus in eating. There's a whole bunch of things I could have added, a bunch more, but I'll quickly go through some of these just to remind us. His first miracle, he serves wine at a wedding feast. He's not afraid to party. He eats at Zacchaeus' house, that traitor. He goes and has a meal with him. He eats with tax collectors and sinners and is accused of it all the time. In fact, he's accused of being a drunkard and glutton which was the Pharisees' way of saying, you ought to be stoned, and if your parents would be the ones saying this, we would take you out and stone you. Back to that Deuteronomy passage. He tells parables about a king's banquet. He gives his disciples a meal to remember his death and resurrection. Not a secret sign. There's no little secret handshake that Jesus passed along. He gave them a meal, a simple meal, bread and a cup said, remember me as you eat and drink. Reveals himself through a meal on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection. He eats with his disciples on the shore of Galilee before restoring Peter. He refers to the new creation as a wedding feast. There isn't an avoidance of food. In fact, there's a engaging food and, and celebrating food as a gift from God, as a way that God can actually speak to us through the food we eat. If we look in scripture, there's a few themes that come up. One is we're sustained by God's providence through food. Genesis 1, God gives every green plant as a gift of food. Deuteronomy 8, as the people of Israel are coming out of the wilderness, God says, I fed you so you didn't go hungry. All these 40 years of wandering, I took care of you. Psalm 146 and then 147 both talk about how God gives food as a gift to people and then God gives food as a gift to the animals in creation. God is the provider. He's giving us good gifts. We're ushered into God's freedom. Matthew 6 says, Don't worry about what you will eat or drink, about what you will wear. God knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, I've learned the secret of being content, whether in want or in plenty, whether I've got enough to eat or not. (laughs) I know how to be content because God is taking care of us. I have a freedom I didn't otherwise have. And as we encounter the early church, one of the things that we hear from them right away about the early church after the Holy Spirit's come on them is that they share meals together. They break bread in each other's homes. They get together day in and day out. Hospitality becomes a mark uh, of the new kingdom, of the Spirit's presence with God's people. Food, eating food together, is part of the sign that God is with us. God is living among us. So how do we nurture this awareness of God's providence as we eat, whether it's eating the communion meal or or sharing a meal in each other's homes. How do we nurture that? How do we nurture this sense of of God giving us freedom in life to enjoy what he gives but also to trust that he will give in his time? How do we nurture this hospitality among us? The early church and and throughout the Middle Ages and even into recent times, there's kind of a revival of it pointed to two habits. It said the church needs to develop and grow. One was fasting and the other was feasting. With fasting, they said, it's it's intended not to go, oh, look how holy I am. I don't need to eat food. I'm going to live on the Spirit alone. It wasn't that. It was as we fasted, it exposed our hunger for God that God-shaped hole inside of us that Augustine talks about and others throughout history have talked about, that sense that, that we all, because we have sinned, are missing out on who God is. And sometimes we fill that hole with food and we fill it with other things. And the act of fasting exposes our hunger for God, helps us to recognize we still need God to provide for us and care for us. Historically, the church really focused on two seasons for this Advent and Lent. Now, Advent today, we go to the opposite end. We typically feast from the time Advent starts, and sometimes even into November, early November, the Christmas parties start, right? And we go feast, 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 feast. But the early church said, no, this is a season as we anticipate remembering the birth of Christ, and as we anticipate his second coming, this is a season to fast and to become aware of our hunger for God. And Lent, as we anticipate, not only Easter, but but celebrating just before that the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of our sins, another season in which we are called to be aware of the hunger each of us has for God. And feasting. It, It nurtures in us a posture of thankfulness and gratitude for the lavish nature of God's love. The reason we have a thanksgiving day even culturally is tied into this judeo-christian pattern of giving thanks to god for what god has given to us paying attention to that scriptural pattern of saying god you have been good it's built into the life of god's people already that three times a year they were to bring stuff to jerusalem typically what they had just grown that season harvest in and bring it in to God to the temple and to celebrate a meal together that God has been faithful again this year those patterns of feasting so that we can say together God is good and historically the church has said we do this Sundays you know that have a feast on Sunday Have people over, have a big meal in the afternoon, and say to one another, Isn't God good? Jesus rose from the dead. He's coming back again. Isn't God good? And when we celebrate communion, to do the same thing as we taste that bread and taste the cup, not that it's a meal that's going to fill any of our bellies, but it will fill our spirits and allow us to say together, God is good. His faithfulness is being shown to us again today. We're recalling how good and faithful he is. And the church has found reasons throughout the year to have those days and moments of celebration, of feasting together. We're preparing for a new year, a new ministry year as we call it. We'll start pretty soon hearing announcements about Sunday school teachers that are needed, and there are some needed We'll hear about friendship ministry starting up and Bible studies and small groups and other things that will be going on. And it's good and it's exciting and there's lots of stuff happening. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all the busyness that comes with the start of the school year and ministry year, I encourage us not to lose sight of this. Those times of fasting Maybe it's just a meal. Maybe it's social media for a week. Maybe it's whatever. But taking some space where we say, I'm going to expose my hunger for God and recognize again, I need him. Or other times where we say to one another, let's celebrate because I realize today anew that God is good. Make a big meal. Invite people over. Say, come on in. Taste and see once again that the Lord is is good. Let's pray. Lord, we gotta admit that the devil's pretty tricky and we buy into his lies still today. We chase after food to fill holes in our hearts and our souls. We chase after food to make ourselves feel better. Lord, we need you. We need the good gift of food and we need, need the good gift of Jesus Christ to make us whole and, and holy. That we might be like you in our relationships with one another, that we might reflect the grace that you have given to us, that you have lavished on us in the way we relate to each other and to the people around us. May you forgive us for the gluttonous ways we do church. May you forgive us for the gluttonous ways that we treat food. May you forgive us for the gluttonous ways we respond to your gospel of grace. Help us not to hoard it, but to lavish it upon others even as you have lavished it upon us. We pray this in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.